Well, it's a joy to be with you as we open the Word of God this morning, and I have enjoyed reading and studying this particular passage myself this past few weeks. We are in Ecclesiastes 5. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 6, verse 9. So it's kind of a long passage, but it it does flow nicely, and I've uh, I've entitled this particular message, God's Gift of Life. This is what we're going to talk about this morning, God's gift of life. This is what we have as Christians to offer this great life. Think about it. It is a life beyond compare, truly otherworldly, that rests not on human strength, but on the supernatural power that comes from absolute truth. It's designed to be purposeful, never aimless, productive, never lazy, fully outfitted, not only to handle life's challenges, but to overcome them. It has expectations that far exceed anything earthly. The one who lives it fears nothing in this world. Enemies cannot hurt him. Trials and tribulations are really positive means of growth and character. Even death is no longer an enemy and holds no power over him. It actually is a means of great gain. Nothing in this life is left up to chance but foreordained to take place for the good of the one who lives this life. It's eternal. It's oriented toward a destination, not of this earthly realm. The one in this life carries with him a deep and abiding joy is responsible for his actions and humble. And it's what we offer, again, to the unsaved world. It's what we offer. We've been talking a great deal about the black, bleak background of human life under the sun, one that holds no hope of lasting satisfaction, but, it's absolute, but is absolutely futile. You might remember last week, and actually a few week, for a few weeks now, we've seen more of it with the godless rich oppressing the poor in their futile attempts to obtain lasting satisfaction. They're motivated by a ravenous hunger for more. And, uh, but as the, the text makes clear, the godless rich are no better off even than the ones they oppress. In the end, everyone ends up the same way in the grave. Again, a very bleak picture indeed. And it's in the midst of this dark patch of text that the sage shines a spotlight on the only hope there is for humanity, a God-oriented life. And if you're not there already, we're in Ecclesiastes 5. And as I say, we're going from verses 18 all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. And there we see how the sage offers this new life to his fallen and skeptical audience. It's great. And that his offer of true life should come out of the the thick blackness of human depravity is a keen reminder to all of us of how we highlight the gospel to our unbelieving audience. If God should open their eyes to see the gospel, they will see just how good it is. In fact, see that it is the best when we give it in the context of the worst-case scenario, that is, the man-oriented life. The man-oriented life. Now, I want to give you the thrust, as I do every time we look at a passage of Scripture, the thrust of 
this rather large passage. Um, I've, I've summed it up this way. God has, by his grace, given all true worshipers a God-oriented life. It's preoccupied with a rejoicing that staves off the worries of life, keeps them responsible and humble, unlike the godless who have not received this grace and strive endlessly and unsuccessfully to secure lasting gain by any means necessary. And this is the, uh, is the passage that we really have been waiting for. It presents to us the contrast between a man-oriented life and a God-oriented life. And the God-oriented life is quite different, opposite, in fact. Couldn't be more opposite. It is wonderful, unique, and it's characterized, at the very least, by joy, humility, and responsibility. So let's take a look at this offer that the sage makes to his unbelieving skeptical audience as he defines and and explains this wonderful God-oriented life. We we know, first of all, that it is God-oriented. This is a God-oriented life that God has given by his grace to all true worshipers. And that uh, we see right at the very beginning, right at the outset, in the first part of verse 18. The sage draws her attention to an unbelievable existence with a lifestyle all its own that is quite unique. It doesn't belong to this earthly realm. No, quite the opposite. It's spiritual. And it belongs to the heavenly realm where God dwells. It's a life that has God at its center. Look at the description The very first verse, verse 18, this passage, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, the sage says. Good and fitting. Now, that's the New American Standard translation, which is a fair translation, but it needs some clarification here. Good isn't good in a moral sense here in this text, but it is rather a good situation. It's a positive scenario in this context. We might say it's the best case scenario. And I say that because evil, the counterpart to good, so far in Ecclesiastes, doesn't refer to something immoral, but rather to a bad situation. And in some contexts, the worst case scenario. And when he introduces, what he he introduces in verse 18 then is the best, the best kind of existence that is possible on this earth. Now the next adjective, fitting, is the Hebrew word for beautiful. But to say that this life is beautiful or attractive doesn't really go far enough in the context. Oh, it it certainly is attractive, make no mistake about that, as we'll see in a moment. And any, any sane unbeliever would have to agree because it offers what they so desperately desire and work so hard for but can never seem to attain. That's lasting satisfaction. What else does the sage mean then by fitting? Well, he used it back in chapter 3, verse 11, where he says that God has made everything appropriate in its time. Now, this is where the New American Standard Bible comes up with the idea of fitting. God has ordained everything in humanity or in human history to occur when, where, and how he wants it to. The timing, the place, the way it comes about, are all divinely appointed, and these appointments are suitable and right and proper in their context. So when the sage refers to this life as fitting, he means that 
It's the only life that God has deemed appropriate and proper. In other words, God determined the best case scenario in living life or for living life under the sun. He designed it with a certain look and feel to behave a certain way. And judging by what the sages already mentioned, we would be right in saying that it's lived in balance, not to extremes. It worships the creator, not the creation. It regards God above all else, not riches, hedonistic pleasures, status, or power. It's certainly not a hypocritical existence. What you see is what you get. It's summed up by loving God and loving neighbor as one ought and in that order, which is why it is referred to as the God-oriented life. But there's something more. The God-oriented life is preoccupied with rejoicing. It's preoccupied with rejoicing. We've said a lot about joy already this, uh, in this uh, service. Let's say some more about it. Verse 18, the sage tells us further that this God-oriented life is particularly a life of celebration and rejoicing. Notice, to eat and drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labors, in which he labors under the sun during the few years of his life. Now notice the reference to eating and drinking. This expression, of course, is figurative for celebration. The Israelites celebrated during their their great holy festivals by eating and drinking. Now we're not talking about carousing. (laughs) We're talking about about table fellowship kind of stuff. What's more, we see that enjoyment is connected with celebration. Celebration and enjoyment are related to each other in a very special way. The two, at the same time, are the cause and the result of each other. So we celebrate our joy and we rejoice over what we celebrate. Both feed each other. And the bottom line is that one One lives this unique, above-the-sun life by celebrating and rejoicing over it. Everything that one does in this new life matters, unlike the futility of a fallen existence. In the grand scheme of things, this God-oriented person is able to enjoy this life in whatever shape it takes, even in the midst of tragedy and calamity and persecution and all other setbacks of life under the sun. It's not immune to those things, but receives them differently, you see, with thanksgiving. Wow. Where do I get some of that? How does, how does one come by this life where everything matters, where there's, there's a guarantee of lasting satisfaction and God is at the center? Well, according to the last part of verse 18, God has to give it. God has to give it. It reads, which God has given. God, by his grace, gives these years of celebration and rejoicing of a God-oriented life to individuals. And you cannot obtain it on your own might or create it by some special set of circumstances. You cannot evolve into it or inherit it or win it or earn it or have someone bestow it upon you by some maybe famous dignitaries. No, there's no place under the sun where you can go to get this life. God must give it to you. This is a gift. Now, in light of everything that the sage has talked about up to this point, this is shocking news. 
He hinted at it back in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, brought it up again in chapter 3, verses 12 and 14, and in case you missed it, he returns to it here after exposing the lifestyle of the godless rich that falls short of lasting satisfaction. Unlike any lifestyle on earth, this God-oriented life that is born of heaven enables those who receive it to live in this fallen world in a celebratory and rejoicing manner. But how is that possible? How is it that a God-oriented life can be characterized by celebration and rejoicing in the midst of all the misery and disappointment so common to all when all other lifestyles are not characterized that way? Well, it's possible because this God-oriented life is divinely appointed. Hmm. Divinely appointed. That's right. What do you mean by that? Well, the again, the New American Standard translation continues at the end of verse 18 with, for this is his reward. Now, for is a causal kind of particle, right? This would refer to the life that we're talking about. So we say the reason for this life being the way that it is is one's reward. Now, reward is not wrong, but it is, it's not as an accurate translation as, say, portion, or the more familiar biblical term, lot. You understand that, I think, much better in this context. God has given these years to him as his portion, as his lot in life. Now, what this means is the God-oriented life that God gives and is at the center of, is our new lot. It's our portion. It's God-appointed, remember? Everything about this ordained, uh, this life is ordained, even the tribulations in life. Christians, we know Christians are certainly not immune to the pitfalls of the fallen world, right? We're not. We live the Christian life here in a cursed, fallen world. We we're not subject, are we not subject to illness and disease? Yes, of course we are. This, is, this last pandemic, it didn't pass over our houses like the angel of death did in ancient Israel and fall just on non-Christians. Christians are just as vulnerable as anyone else is to the operations of a fallen world and, and from being mistreated by fallen individuals and depraved governments. But the difference... For us, and the great thing about a God-oriented life is that everything that we encounter, both the triumphs and the tragedies, is God-ordained for us for our good. In fact, much of the tragedies we experience are as a direct result of our relationship with God himself, aren't they? Of course they are. We, we're called, we call them persecutions. And there are certainly other trials that are not under the category of persecution that also before befall us that wouldn't, ordinarily, were we not Christians. Think about that. A missionary wouldn't have, to, wouldn't have contracted malaria if he hadn't gone to Africa to bring the gospel. The Apostle Paul wouldn't have been bitten by a poisonous snake if he hadn't been persecuted for his faith, sent to Rome by way of boat, and got shipwrecked. 
And there is, of course, in addition to all of this, being on the receiving end of the effects of the fall of Adam. New, more potent diseases, drunk drivers at the wheel, nor'easters and other natural disasters slamming up against our houses. Yet Christians see all of this as part of their lot, their portion, and they receive it as tailor-made for them for their good. A believer with, with God at the center of his life knows that whatever he experiences is what God has determined to bring to him in order to get him from point A to point B. Each of us has our own lot in life that God has given us, or him or her rather, by, by his merciful hand. It's filled with God-ordained twists and turns, trials and triumphs. But in our case, they simply become platforms for personal growth, ministry opportunity, strengthening our character, and for, for rejoicing, as James says, not as excuses to despair or become depressed or to act sinfully. And if you claim to be a Christian and this doesn't sound familiar, well, then, then you, you either need to examine to see if you're in the faith or you need to repent for not being grateful for what God has given you. Now, this wonderful life goes for all true worshipers, every single one of us. And that includes true worshipers who are rich. Remember, we're in the context of the wealthy. Let's not forget that. We've already seen how the fallen rich live and think. Now we see how differently the redeemed rich live and think. Verse 19 tells us that God has made some worshipers wealthy. Do you see that? Furthermore, as for every person to whom God has given riches and wealth. And then we learn that God has likewise given the rich believer the same opportunity that every other believer has to enjoy his God-given lot and to rejoice in his labor for it. Rest of verse 19, he has also given him the opportunity to enjoy them and to receive his lot and rejoice in his labor. The lot of the rich obviously include wealth. And while the godless rich person is selfish and willing to oppress others to increase his wealth, not so for the God-oriented rich. Now, he's not unsatisfied with what he has. He's not consumed with wanting more. Rather, he acknowledges that what he has and what he's worked for is really a blessing from God. And he shows his thankfulness to, his sovereign, to God's sovereign goodness for it by, by enjoying its fruits. Very simple. The last part of verse 19 states, For the record, that this life, with all its sovereignly ordained events, is the gift of God. God's gift of life. It's, it's God-oriented, and uh, it is a life of joy. We might also note that this wonderful, unique, God-oriented life that is joyful is also responsible. It is a responsible life. Now, there's a, a, a wonderful dynamic that takes place here that I don't want you to miss. The joy that is generated from this new life that God gives actually preserves the believer 
in his God-given responsibilities. Now, how's that? Well, his rejoicing over his divinely appointed lot actually staves off worry associated with the wealthy that so often hinders responsibility. We've established that the God-oriented person is preoccupied with rejoicing over his lot. He lives a a celebrative life characterized by rejoicing. He celebrates the grace of God in his life. He's aware that everything he has been given him ultimately comes from the hand of a merciful God. So one of the practical effects of this is that he doesn't worry about the future. He doesn't. Worry is one of the more debilitating states of mind, I think you'll agree, and it can keep a person from being responsible. Why is that? Well, he speculates about what might happen in the future, believes it to be reality when it isn't, and then he spends all his energies trying to fix something that hasn't happened yet and likely won't. How foolish is that, right? It's foolish. What's more, he winds up ignoring the responsibilities of today, which only add more misery to his unstable mind. Not so the man who is God-oriented. He is so preoccupied with gratitude for his lot and all that it entails that he celebrates God's grace by the way he lives, which keeps him from the worries of tomorrow, from operating on speculation. He, He doesn't fret like the godless man who keeps himself up at night wondering what will become of his estate, who's trying to steal from him, who, who can he trust to run his business, how can he spend less, save more, work less, make more? No, none of that. The godly, by contrast, according to verse 20, will not off, often call to mind the years of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. The years of his life are not here past years, which would not make sense in this context. I think they have to do with how the coming years of his life will take shape. And the godly rich doesn't worry a bit about that. Well, come on, let's be real. Everyone worries about his future, his investments, his retirement. No, not the one whose life is oriented toward God. His eye is on the kingdom, you see. His mind is set on kingdom activity. He knows that God will provide. And let me be quick to say that that it doesn't mean that he becomes a slouch either just because he knows God will provide. Sometimes the Christian counterpart to an unproductive person in the world who worries himself out of his responsibilities is an immature Christian who sits back and shirks his responsibilities because he's waiting for God to do the work, you see. That kind of nonsense. The sage tells us that it's especially because the God-oriented person celebrates and rejoices over God's grace in his life that he is kept, not only from sinful worry, but kept busy. He's kept busy. Mature believers who know that God provides their daily bread, they still go out and work for it. Oh, yes. They're responsible. God brings the increase to responsibility. 
The rest of the verse reads, God keeps him busy with the joys of his heart. Another way to say that is that a God-oriented life is responsible to stay busy celebrating God's grace. How do you celebrate God's grace in your life? How do you celebrate what God has given you in your life? Well, by using it wisely. You live in light of God's gift to you, a life filled with spiritual capabilities, with scripture, with prayer, with commands and principles to carry out God's commission, God-given roles and, and stations in life. God's grace is always sufficient for all our tasks. Well, that's how we become responsible. We become responsible of our lot when we receive it with thanksgiving. And then we respond to it in a way that glorifies God. You use your money wisely to support your family, to support the church, to support those in need, God's full-time workers. You receive trials well, looking at them as a time to examine your heart, as platforms for ministry, as opportunities to champion godliness, to glorify God in your body. That's how you celebrate God's grace in your life. If you weren't doing any of that, we would have every reason to believe that you weren't happy with what God has given you. There's still more. This new, wonderful, unique, God-oriented life is humbling. That's in chapter 6, verse, first six verses. The true worshiper, The true worshiper is humbled by God's gift of new life that he gives to those of his choosing, Far from those who are motivated by riches to oppress people for financial gain, as we saw a few verses ago with fallen government, the true worshiper is motivated by humility. And when you come to know God and his, and his gift of new life and receive it, well, you've greatly, you've greatly, you're greatly humbled by it for, for, well, for a few reasons that the sage now gives. Let me give them to you. The first reason would be that God doesn't grant this to everyone without exception. God does not grant this new life to everyone without exception. That's in verses 1 and 2. There is an evil which I've seen under the sun, the sage says, and it is widespread among mankind. A person to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honor, so that his soul lacks for nothing and all that he desires, yet God has not given him the opportunity to enjoy these things. But a foreigner enjoys them. This is futility and severe affliction. This is a rather bold statement by the sage. He paints a, a sober reality for his audience. God gives people their wealth, yes, their status, of course, and at the same time, he prevents a good many of them, verse says, widespread occurrence, from enjoying their riches. And joy here, of course, is now by this time really a shorthand word or code word for enjoying, for enjoying life the way God has called us to. Remember this, this best life, this good life. Now, they don't enjoy they are prevented from it. To make matters worse, God works it out so that a stranger enjoys it instead. However this situation takes place today, it has, a, a, it has to be maddening to those to whom it applies. And any sane non-Christian, whether he's one of them or not, would have to see that this isn't a good situation for those that it does apply to. 
In fact, the sage himself not only says so at the beginning by calling it an evil, that is a bad situation, he emphasizes just how bad at the end with the words futility and severe affliction. It's a fleeting joy. And in this case, very fleeting when a rich person's lot includes losing his riches to a stranger. Sage calls this lot a severe affliction. The fact that God does not give everyone, without exception, a God-oriented life that makes the true worshiper, that makes the true worshiper all the humbler. We are humbled that God chose us to be part of his family because it had nothing to do with us, right? Nothing good in us. He knows that he is undeserving of it. And in his celebration of it, he shows no concern for what might become of his material possessions. Now, he knows. He knows to rejoice, whatever this lot might be, because God has been merciful to give it to him. Now, here's another reason that he's humble, that God's gift of new life, and that is because it's superlative. It's superlative. As we've argued already, it's the best. Now, why is that? Because it offers lasting gain that, that one can enjoy the moment he receives this new life, even when his life is not, from a worldly point of view, as rich and as well-off as the man in verse 3 who fathers a hundred children and lives many years. Children and longevity were much desired in the ancient Near East. But even those are not ultimately what makes life worth living. As far as the man with many kids and many years, the rest of verse 3 clues us in on the fact that however many years there may be, his soul is not satisfied with good things. He's stuck in that fallen disposition that hungers for more and is never full. It may also be one of those whom God prevents from enjoying his riches. In fact, it would appear he could not even afford to have a proper burial, as the rest of the verse says, something else that was also very important in the ancient Near East. Third reason one who receives the, the gift of new life is humbled is that the alternative, the best that an under-the-sun worldview can produce, big family, long life, lots of money, is futile. So futile that the sage says such people would be better off if they had died at birth. Wow. Look at verse 4. Better the miscarriage than he. What? Why say such a thing? Is life under the sun that bad? Well, that's rather severe, don't you think? Well, here's the sage's reason. Are you ready? A miscarriage comes in futility and goes into darkness. Its name is covered in darkness. It has not even seen the sun, nor does it know, know it. Yet it is better off than that man. You see, if life that is separated from God is futile, as the life that is miscarried is futile. Well, then, better to be miscarried and not have to experience all the added headaches. That's the reasoning. 
And the rich, as we pointed out last time, have their own headaches and heartaches, their own disappointments and disasters, and to a much greater scale than the average Joe. More than this, they are never truly satisfied. Most of chapter 5 talks about their insatiable appetite for more of what they already have in abundance. Remember their sleepless nights, racing thoughts about their estate and their status, how they will keep it protected, increase it. And we've seen what that when their great wealth and status and position and authority are threatened or diminished, well, they, they slip into a depression. Some even jump off buildings. And if you had the opportunity to ask any of those before they jumped, is life so bad that you have to end it this way? They would likely say, I wish I died at birth. The last reason that a person is humbled by this God-oriented life is that it's the only one that receives God's blessing beyond the grave. Beyond the grave. There's no question that the sage understood the benefits of receiving God's new life in Messiah included life in God's heavenly kingdom. I really believe that he understood that. He knew that all life, even the God-oriented one, is destined to die. That's the result of God's judgment on a fallen humanity. Now, don't be fooled by longevity. We've talked about it before from Ecclesiastes. You can outlive most, get into the Guinness World Book of Records, but the quality of real life severely diminishes with age, as we all are finding out. Maybe some exceptions in the back row. (laughs) Plenty of people have lost their ability to see, to hear, to be independent, And they don't really think life is quite worth living at that point. I was a hospice chaplain to Alzheimer's patients for five years. Very eye-opening, humbling experience. The common complaint I heard was from them was, quote, why can't I just die and not have to live this way anymore, end quote. Got it all the time. Some of them lived in very expensive assisted living facilities that that only the independently wealthy could afford, thousands a week. But even with the finest in elderly care that money can buy, the grave was more inviting with each passing day, with each bathroom visit, with each swallow of the handful of tablets that made them nauseous and with every look out the window that reminded them of a world they used to belong to. I can vouch for the sage, and what he says at this point, he continues in verse 6, even if the man lives a thousand years twice, but does not see good things, do not all go to the one and the same place. It is a sad, pathetic end to human life, where the ones at death's door pining to be let in or taken in the prime of life to have toiled in pain and suffering all his life only to end up at the judgment seat of God. Our passage doesn't introduce God's judgment, but the sage spoke about it already, chapter 3, and he will later on quite a bit. And when you see life from this angle... Well, even the sanest 
fallen individual would have to admit that a blessed life after the grave is really what we should live for during life before the grave. Ah, that's really the key to understanding why God's gift is so wonderful. He's give, he gives eternal life that begins now and extends beyond the grave to his kingdom. It's the guarantee of eternal life that puts things into proper perspective and allows you to enjoy life now with the full and lasting satisfaction because everything you do in a God-oriented life matters. Everything matters. Your new life is your lot that God gave you by his merciful hand to be used for his glory and your future investment in the kingdom. Now, I want to say that this concept of eternal life that God gives is not hard to understand, but it still escapes many because of their hunger for gain. All right, In verses 7 to 9, we see that those who are not God-oriented will strive endlessly and unsuccessfully to secure their own lasting satisfaction by any means necessary. They're going to hear you, it's going to go in this ear, out the other, and off they go. It's such a trap. And for those who, of, of us who, who've received God's gift of life, it's hard to watch, especially when it's our loved ones working hard with the belief that they can obtain the better side of life, not realizing that their endless and aggressive striving is nothing more than for the wind. The sage has something to say to this person. This is what he says, and this is what we have to say as well. He says, first, you will not achieve it, all right? What you think you will achieve, you won't. Verse 7, all a person's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. Sounds like an old Italian expression, doesn't it? I can hear my grandmother saying something like that. The more you want, the harder you need to work, and the more you make will only leave you hungry for more. It's a futile striving. Second, it makes no difference which vantage point you come at life the end is the same. We've been talking about the rich, but that's only because they represent the epitome of human achievement and consumerism. But the sage's message is to everyone. Verse 8, for what advantage does the wise have over the fool? What does the poor person have knowing how to walk before the living? All rhetorical questions, of course. Whether you're wise or foolish, rich or poor, in the end, it doesn't matter when you live with an under-the-sun worldview, a man-oriented lifestyle. You're always motivated by a selfish hunger for lasting gain, and all approaches to life are equally helpless in achieving it. Third, your only hope, your only hope from this world is that you only glimpse the fleeting treasures of life and not develop a ravenous appetite for them. Oh, that's really all you can hope for. You see, what the eye see is better than what the soul desires. That's what the sage says. What's he mean by that? Well, you're safer when you see life's sweets from a page in a book rather than up close in a candy store where the aroma arouses your passions. But truth be told, even if you're spared from the unique headaches of the riches, Glimpsing them still amounts to a waste of time. 
This too, he says, is futility and striving after the wind. Instead of spending your life indulging in riches, but standing motionless and unproductive, admiring them, either way, it's, it's a futile thing. The bottom line is that you just cannot win when you live under the sun with a man-oriented lifestyle. Well, those of us who claim this world, wonderful gift of God, who have a God-oriented life that is responsible and humble, we can do more for unbelieving listeners than just telling them this. We can certainly show them. The Apostle Paul was good at this as he described as he described his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We heard it read this morning for our scripture reading. In verses 7 and 9, he refers to the hardships that come with this new God-oriented life. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Now, we might, we might as well add to the short list from a more detailed list in chapter 7. Are you ready? This is Paul speaking. Of his incomparable and intense labors and imprisonments, his beatings, times without number, often in danger of death, of five occasions he was shipwrecked, I'm sorry, whipped by the Jews, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, shipwrecked on three occasions, spent a night and a day in the sea, ministering through many sleepless nights, sometimes hungry and thirsty, in cold and exposure. Now this kind of lifestyle is enough to cause anyone who might endure it to throw in the towel. And many who live apart from God in this world do that all the time, for much less, I might add. They become depressed, catatonic, unresponsive, unmotivated, even suicidal. But Christians never, ever have the right to throw in the towel. If anyone did, it would have been Paul, but Paul says no. Why? How? Verse 1 puts it well. He says, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. What's this mean? The ministry that he's talking about includes those terrible ordeals that we just listed, which are the very things that cause people to throw in the towel on life. Huh. What kind of life gains strength and rejoices and is motivated to keep going by the very things which cause hopelessness in the man-oriented life? Tell me. It's the God-oriented life. Paul says that these hardships are part of his ministry. We might say it this way. Paul's lot in life was his ministry and it included hardships along with the triumph. More than this, Paul says that this ministry, filled with hardships plus, was given to him by the hand of a merciful God. How's that? A life filled with hardships is a merciful life? Oh, yes. How can that be? Well, when you consider that you deserve far worse gift of eternal life that begins under the sun and may be fraught with hardships that end 
the end in glory, it is far better than eternal condemnation, don't you think? Oh, it's infinitely better. God was merciful to Paul by sparing him from what he deserved, hell, giving him what he didn't deserve, heaven. And until heaven becomes reality for Paul, he remains responsible to use his new life for the sake of Christ, accepting the hardships responsibly and humbly. His last word comes in verses 16 and 17. Let's end with these. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen. Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us, preserving this wonderful part of Scripture that we might know it and read it and be comforted by it. We know that the God-oriented life is indeed a gift, and those of us who have been on the receiving end of it rejoice. And we we do repent for failing to appreciate and to rejoice and to celebrate your grace to us fully and completely in the way that we should. We know that in doing so, we have a great opportunity to model this God-oriented life to the world, to show them and prove that it is indeed the ultimate, the best-case scenario. We pray, O Lord, only because we know that our that people will look at our behavior long before they listen to our doctrine. That we need to be consistent and demonstrate this great life you have given to us. That they may then be curious, find it attractive, and give us an opportunity to speak the truth in love. Father, we thank you now. We do pray that you will that you will give us these great opportunities and to, to show our great love for you by the way we live and the way we communicate this great life to others who so desperately need Christ for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.